Welcome back, everyone, to episode two of our crossover series with Historian Splaining. I'm joined by Sam, who is on vacation in Cape Cod and does not have a good microphone, so please forgive us for that. I hope that you will be able to understand him. Despite all the technological difficulties, we are very excited to have him back to actually get into what the deal is with this particular philosophical movement, Hasidic Judaism. Thank you, Sam, for coming back. Thanks for talking with me. This should be fun. Before we get into Hasidic Judaism specifically, last time we talked about how in the beginning of what they call the modern era, the 1700s, that's when there seemed to be a split in how Jews began wanting to practice Judaism. These were the roots of the Haskalah movement, the Zionist movement, the radical secular movement, and also Hasidic Judaism, which is what we're going to talk about today. Before we get into that, why do you think the split happened at this particular time? Judaism had existed in a ghettoized state at this point for like 300 years, 400 years or so. Mm-hmm. Why was this the moment that Hasidic Judaism and also the other streams had a chance to break out? Yeah, well, that's really, it's hard to pin things like that down specifically to one cause, but certainly in the 18th century, the population was growing, the cities were growing, there was a growing popular press, people were able to promote and exchange new ideas more quickly and easily with the growing book press and newspaper press. There also was a shift happening in Gentile society with the sort of new growing cities and rising literacy, it became possible for more people in more countries to live sort of independent of the religious establishment. And that doesn't necessarily mean they stopped being religious altogether. There weren't many atheists, but it wasn't as socially obligatory to go to church and conform to religious strictures as much as before. And so what that meant was people within the Jewish community who had all these legal restrictions and all these prejudices against them, it sort of lowered the bar. And it signaled that if you then did take a leap and undergo baptism, you could go out there into a Gentile society that was more sort of free than it had been before. And so it sort of lowered the burden of just undergoing a formal conversion and being able to join this much more kind of dynamic, wider society. That put a lot of pressure on the traditional Jewish community, you know, which had really adapted to maintain cohesiveness and order and unity within this tightly constricted world of the ghetto or the shtetl in some places. And so there was an increasing number of people actually converting. So really, you know, I said there were four responses to kind of the rote traditionalism of Judaism, but really the first one actually was conversion. And that was becoming more common in the 17 and 1800s. And that put a lot of pressure on Jewish society to come up with responses, to come up with new ways of practicing Judaism that would continue to be appealing and that would give people more of a sense of being part of this wider sort of freer world. So it really was changing social conditions mm-hmm. in general across across all of European society really that caused the possibility of these probably undercurrents of thought that existed to kind of be able to be explored more openly. Yeah, well, and and in different ways, they were inventive. Haskalah and Hasidism, they drew on pre-existing ideas. You know, Mendelssohn might have looked back to Maimonides and sort of Aristotelian philosophy. And the Hasids looked, of course, back to Kabbalah, the mystical tradition, which had been going on for hundreds of years. But they were also inventive. They were coming up with ways of applying those alternative ideas to actual everyday life, to how you actually lived and practiced Judaism every day. That was the innovation in the 1700s. How would you compare, would you compare this moment in Jewish history to our previous series that we did on Shabbatai Zvi? Well, there are clearly echoes. I mean, everyone sees that, that there are echoes and parallels from the Shabbatai movement to the Hasidic movement, and there are some similar ideas. You know, Haskalah and Hasidism 
were both looking to strike a balance to sort of form a new Judaism, a new Jewish piety that they believed could be permanently viable for the long term, as opposed to the Shabbatai movement, which was about anticipating an imminent change in the world. Jews in these movements did continue to believe in a Messiah, but it was more kind of on the back burner. And it's kind of debated among scholars, how much did these new movements really think or talk about the Messiah? Was that important to them? But in a way, you could say they were trying to learn from the Shabbatai experience of not putting too much stock in the imminent arrival of a Messiah. So let us begin at the beginning. Take us to the old world shtetl, Sam, and explain to us how this very interesting Hasidic movement began and why it grew. So Hasidism is a lay, mystical, and pietistic form of Judaism that started in the mid-1700s in Eastern Europe. It's an Ashkenazi phenomenon all the way, you know, from start to finish. It's an Ashkenazi Jewish phenomenon. And it started in a town in a region called Podolia, which today is in Ukraine, but at this time in the 1700s, it was a territory of Poland. So it really started off first in what was then the Kingdom of Poland. This region, Podolia, had a pretty sizable Jewish population. It was a fairly diverse Jewish community. There were Jews who had come from different parts of Europe and from the Ottoman Empire who had different practices and beliefs. There was a fairly strong Shabbatai Tzvi movement in Podolia in the 1600s. And it had also been hit hard by the Cossack persecutions and massacres in the 1600s. But by the mid-1700s, it was really recovering and had actually become a reasonably prosperous area where there were fairly strong Jewish communities with some degree of prosperity and prestige in the Kingdom of Poland. The movement, it began around a sort of central charismatic figure who was named Israel ben Eliezer. He was a Baal Shem. And that was a common title that was used sometimes even formally for sort of mystical healers, wonder workers, and visionaries who traveled around often from town to town or might be permanently employed by the Jewish community of a town as a sort of resident healer and seer. That is where Israel Ben Eliezer was situated in that world. He came from a very small village in the Carpathian Mountains in the outer frontier of the Ottoman Empire. And we don't know much about his early life, but by about 1740, he was employed by the Jewish community of the town of Mejbij in Podolia to be their Baal Shem. And he got a house and a stipend and he was a recognized member of the community. But he was also unusual. Even among Baal Shem, he was known for very powerful preaching, prayer, meditation. He would go into sort of deep trances and stupors with dramatic facial expressions. He would weep before the Torah ark. He sort of brought this very immediate and emotional style of worship to this town that really made an impression on people. And so he became a sort of notorious person around the region and other people gathered around him. People who were aware of him came to Mejbij and formed a sort of circle around Israel ben Eliezer. They were people who were interested in a sort of new form, a new form of worship and piety that was kind of in the air at that time. It wasn't all invented just by Israel himself. That can be exaggerated. It was a sort of generational shift that was happening where there were kind of new preachers, new philosophers who were interested in a more emotional Judaism and who emphasized prayer even over Torah study. And that was a really important new view and new attitude. The Judaism of that era took great pride in deep learning of the Torah and the Talmud and halachic study and debate. That was kind of the central, you know, centerpiece of their Judaism. So this was a new idea to really emphasize prayer as the main pathway towards God. That reminds me a lot of the musical trends or fashion trends. I'm wondering where you think this particular trend comes from. Do you think it comes internally from Jews just being frustrated with the current practice, or are they getting inspiration from other places? 
Well, they probably did get inspiration from some other places. There was a German lay pietist movement at the same time among German Gentiles who emphasized sort of personal piety, internal, emotional connection to God rather than, you know, doctrinal debate, which is what had been tearing Christianity apart in Europe, right, for the past 200 years. But it also was internal, you know, and it's impossible to pin down. If you were a Jew in Eastern Europe at this time, you could have looked around and seen inspirations from maybe people like the Mennonites or the German pietist movement. But those were available for decades or even centuries. So it doesn't necessarily account for why they adopted this new idea of Judaism at this particular time. And it seems like as far as that goes, it probably was the social pressures of this era, right? And the sort of anxiety that Judaism had become too rote, too dry, too intellectualized, that it wasn't maintaining people's feeling of personal connection. And that probably spurred on this kind of new movement and this new style of piety. So this circle formed around Israel ben Eliezer, and they came to call him the Baal Shem Tov, the good or holy Baal Shem. And so he was called Baal Shem Tov, and the acronym for that is Besht. So that's the common name or title for him that you hear among Hasidim down to today. They refer to him as the Besht. Again, we don't know a lot about exactly what the Besht did and said in his own lifetime. There are only a couple of surviving letters that he wrote that we can still see. Rather, what we have mostly is stories and sayings about the Besht that were collected in later years. And he became a kind of legendary figure. And they spoke about his fervent emotional prayer, his mystical states, some about his teachings and doctrines. He preached that people should strive for a state of being called Devekut, which sort of means joining together with God. It's not entirely unlike the Christian idea of mystical union with God, and that he preached that this devikut could be achieved through prayer, meditative practice, and through the application of Kabbalah, of Kabbalistic mystical philosophy to prayer, and the idea that you can sort of elevate yourself through the realms of the cosmos towards God and towards the divine, even in just regular, ordinary, everyday prayers, like you might do in synagogue or even at home. So it was taking Kabbalah to the masses, really. Before the Besht, there was a sort of cadre of extreme uh, ascetic Kabbalistic philosophers. You might go to a city with some Jews and you might have a few holy men who studied Kabbalah, who were very learned, and who practiced an extreme asceticism. They would eat very little or fast. Uh, they might live alone as a hermit. They lived these sort of extreme lifestyles that set them out as distinct from other Jews. And the Besht in his circle rejected that. They said, you don't need to be an ascetic. You can live an ordinary everyday life as a normal Jew, you know, going to work or tending your farm, taking care of your family, but also practice this mystical prayer and achieve these higher mystical states. So that was a big innovation. So it was a popularizing movement. It was mystical and popularizing. And the Besht also, people believed that the Besht had special powers. That's not totally unusual for Baal Shem, right? You should have some sort of powers of clairvoyance and healing. But the Besht, they believed, had this ability to intercede with God. He could achieve such a high state of consciousness that he could kind of participate in God's powers and he could act together with God to protect the Jews. And, you know, this was a time when people were afraid of pogroms and persecution and disease and so on. And they believed that the Besht could actually intercede with God to try to forestall disasters like persecutions or disease or famine. So he had a kind of not just mystical insight, but a kind of mystical power. And his followers from his circle as they went off from Mejbij to other places around Eastern Europe, they also set up sort of similar groups and circles around themselves, which were called courts. And many of them claimed similar powers of mystical insight and the ability to intercede, to heal people, protect people, prevent disasters, and so on. And so it kind of hived off and spread around Eastern Europe. So when does it start being 
called its own type of philosophical movement? When does like Hasidism really become the label associated with that? Is that an outside label applied to them? Is that an internal label they've decided to call themselves? Well, it was some of both because, you know, I mentioned there were already people previously before the Besht who were kind of extreme ascetic Kabbalists, and they were sometimes called Hasidim, you know, Hasid singular, Hasidim plural, but they were very different. With the Besht and his followers, they changed the meaning of the word. Instead of meaning this sort of special small cadre of extreme ascetics, instead it came to mean anyone who embraces this mystical philosophy, including all kinds of ordinary men. And it was initially in the early years, it was entirely men. It was a very gradual process that it started to involve women later. Before the Baal Shem Tov came about and stuff started to really accelerate, what were rabbis' relationship with Baal Shems and these original Hasidim? Did they tolerate them? were they considered just part of their peer group? Yeah, well, that's that's a really good question. It's a big part of the story. To sort of explain step by step, being a Baal Shem, although it was mystical and kind of radical in some ways, it had been accepted and institutionalized in the Ashkenazi world. And rabbis and Baal Shem had sort of separated roles You know, the rabbi was the teacher, the scholar, the judge of the community. The Baal Shem was more of kind of the mystical healer and wonder worker, right? There may have been tension, but they basically had to get along, you know, because the community would want both in different ways. But with this movement from the Besht and his followers in the 1760s, as it was growing and spreading, it started to kind of undermine the authority of the rabbinate. And it started to attract their attention as something possibly threatening because they were commanding so much attention and respect from lay people. And they were trying to really re-emphasize how people thought about Judaism and to elevate prayer and meditation as more central and more holy than Torah study. So it did start to be a problem. And basically, to put it in a nutshell, This Hasidic movement was sort of ill-defined, not very organized. It was informal. It was a lay movement. And it spread most quickly around the southern parts of Eastern Europe. So Podolia, Ukraine, southern Poland, Galicia, Hungary. This is where it more caught on. And there was a divide in the Ashkenazi world. As we mentioned before, there was sort of German Jews who were a small population that were more worldly, more cultured, higher status than the so-called Ostjuden, the Eastern European Jews. And then among Ostjuden even, there was a further divide between the sort of southern group who were often called Galicianer, because a lot of them were in Galicia, the sort of southern tier of Poland, and then a northern group who were called Litvak, who were centered in Lithuania, northern Poland, Belarus. There was a distinction there where people saw the Litvak as more scholarly, more intellectual, more part of kind of the Baltic German world, whereas Galicianers were perceived as more provincial, but also more emotional, more fervently pious. So this early movement caught on much more quickly among Galicianers, naturally, right? It sort of fit more with the mode of thought and expression they were more used to. It had much more opposition to the North, especially in Lithuania. That's where the opponents emerged. And these opponents and critics of the movement were called mitnagdim. And they were centered most of all in Vilna. The Vilna Jewish community at this time was big. It was comparatively prosperous. There were many scholars. It was very respected. And their main leader was this kind of charismatic scholar named Elijah Zalman. And he was called the Gaon of Vilna. And Gaon means sort of chief scholar or head rabbi. He was known as kind of brilliant and prolific, a great analyst of the Torah and Talmud. He, in a way, he embodied the more northern scholarly intellectual style, but he also embodied the ascetic style of the sort of pre-beshed holy men, because he would stay up all night. He reportedly put bowls of cold water under his desk to put his feet in cold water to keep himself awake, you know, reading and writing all day and all night. So he had this kind of outsized charismatic figure 
but he was very much a traditional scholar, and he organized the opposition to this new movement. He wrote tracts and letters out to the various Jewish communities saying, we must condemn this movement, it's unintellectual, uh, they're doing outrageous, undignified things. For instance, they're doing handstands and somersaults while praying in their prayer houses. They are abandoning their wives, going off and you know into this world of young men and leaving their families behind. And they're doing uncouth things like abandoning the traditional Ashkenazi Siddur or prayer book and instead using a Sephardic mystical Kabbalistic Siddur. He pointed out all of these things. You may notice none of them are particularly against Halakha. They weren't exactly contrary to Halakha strictly understood, they were just weird and alarming and strange. I guess with the exception of leaving your wife and going into the woods to gallivant with a group of young men, that's... uh... Yeah, well, there wasn't a whole lot of woods. I mean, there was some, you know, the Besht would take some of his followers out on sort of walks in the woods, kind of like Shabbatai Tzvi did. But other Hasidim who embraced the movement, well, they would join together in their own little prayer houses called Shtiblech. And this was one of the things the Vilna Gaon criticized, was that often they would neglect to attend the main synagogue and instead would go off to their separate minions in their own shtibbles. And they would sometimes, especially as the movement grew and leaders took on greater followings, these young men would go out and travel on sort of pilgrimages to visit these rebbies, or they would call them tzadikim. So this term tzadik means sort of righteous person, holy person. And the tzadik of a Hasidic court could gain a massive following from a whole wide area. And people would come on pilgrimages, especially on holidays. They would come for Sukkot or Passover and then return to their families. So they weren't necessarily like abandoning their families, but they might leave for a few days or a week at a time. And that just that could cause strain. The main sort of most important follower of the Besht, who set up sort of the first big court with lots of pilgrims, was named Dov Bear, and he was also called the Magid, which means the preacher. And Dov Bear at certain points did note, we have a bit of a problem here, that we've got all these pious, fervent men coming to see us, which is great, but it causes strain in marriages and sometimes even leads to the end of the marriage. So there was some tension there, and even the leaders of Hasidism took note of that as a problem. Their opponents, the Mitnagdim, definitely used this against them, and one of the accusations they made was of homosexuality. We don't know from any primary sources whether that's true or not. You know, it certainly could be true. But there are letters from critics of Hasidism saying, this is so unseemly. We have these gatherings of young men. They go into these towns where the Rebbe is. And then they all stay together in attics and they drink alcohol and they sing songs. They sing love songs all night. And we know that this is no good, right? <laughs> I, ooh, sounds pretty homosexual to me. Sounds pretty homosexual. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was it, it was a real issue, but we don't know exactly what did or didn't go on, right, in those attics. Okay, so around this time, we're talking like late 1700s, 1780s, 1790s. 1770s, right. When the Vilna Gaon sent out the first letters condemning Hasidism, that was 1772. So by that point, it had grown to a really visible movement. Okay, wow. So we're talking two decades or so, and we mm-hmm. have a visible movement. I'm assuming people are thinking back to what they heard previous generations say about Shabbatai. Maybe they're a little afraid of something like that happening again around these tzaddiks. Yes, exactly. That was definitely part of the background. I think the Mitnagdim were very careful in exactly what accusations they leveled. But one thing they would say is that these Hasidim elevate these preachers and visionaries whom they call tzaddikim. They elevate them into holy persons and they see them as connections, sort of links between the earthly and heavenly worlds. They believe they can intercede with God and they're making them into like little messiahs. That was one of the concerns. And they clearly had the Shabbatai Tzvi incident in the backs of their heads. The connection to Shabbatai, you know, it's very hazy. And I think scholars are just very unsure exactly what to make of it. But there's some sort of connection there where these Hasidim are trying to get something similar to what Shabbatai Tzvi offered. 
but they're not explicitly saying that any of these people are actually the Messiah or that they're leading the way to the Messiah. That's sort of a tender subject. But in terms of their thought and the new mystical theology, there are also some echoes of Shabbatai Tzvi and Nathan of Gaza too, who you know was more of a theologian than Shabbatai himself was. One of the things that it seems the best taught this, and also Dov Bear and other early tzaddikim, they taught a sort of new theology where they emphasized this line. I believe it's from Isaiah. There's a line in Isaiah that says, there is no place devoid of God. And you can find this notion sometimes in Judaism that God suffuses everything, right? There's a divine presence everywhere throughout the cosmos. And that is what the Besht and Dov Bear and these other teachers really emphasized, that if you are in the right state of mind, you can see and appreciate the divine dimension of everything. There's nothing in the world that's entirely profane. So that means that you can find holiness in the ordinary days of the week, outside the Sabbath, in ordinary activities like cooking, eating, you know, work, and that you don't have to worry so much about drawing these sharp distinctions between the sacred and the profane, right? Everything has some sort of divinity and holiness, and hence also nothing is purely evil. And that was important because, you know, people were afraid of like persecution and and violence, but they taught that, well, nothing is entirely evil. Everything is somehow an instrument of God's providence, right? Of God's will. And you can find positive purposes in everything. You should internalize that then into your prayer and meditation. So an important central theme in the Hasidic prayer and meditation practice is that you should embrace any thoughts that come to your mind right? Anything that's in your mind is leading you towards something sacred. Whereas a more traditional or more conventional rabbi would teach you, well, if you're in prayer or in study and you think about sex or you think about food, you should push those thoughts out of your mind, right? You should refocus on the subject that you're studying and push those thoughts away. Well, the Besht and the Magid and these other teachers said, no, you should embrace those thoughts and then try to elevate them by reflecting on how they have divinity in them, right? So if you're thinking about a beautiful woman and sex, you should think about the fact that that woman was created by God and she was given this life force and beauty and vitality by God. And if you think about sex, you should think of it as a metaphor for your union with God. So there's often a kind of sexual dimension to the the prayer and meditation, which is not uncommon in mystical traditions, right? You sort of, it's, it's kind of Freud in reverse. It's like you sublimate those feelings into your mystical state. If you think of Shabbatai Tzvi, you know, all of these people are getting inspiration from Kabbalah in different ways. But the sort of Shabbatai Tzvi and Nathan of Gaza doctrine was that there are evil and unholy realms in the universe, right? And it's the duty of the mystic to delve into the dark evil realms to prepare them for redemption, right? You go down into the demonic realms, the kalipot, the the broken, fragmented places, and you prepare to to lift them up, right? So that's why you do taboo things like eat a non-kosher food or have taboo sex or convert to another religion. Whereas for the Hasidim, it's more that you seek out the divine dimension in everything and bring it into your prayer. So you, the ordinary person, have a kind of redemptive role, but it's because nothing is really truly evil. So some people describe this theology as pantheistic. And in a way, you can also see it as kind of similar to Spinoza. Spinoza was a true pantheist who argued that everything is God, right? Everything is God and God is everything. God is the universe. And Spinoza predated the Hasidic movement by a hundred years or so? By a hundred years, yeah. So he was mid-1600s, yeah. Dutch Jewish philosopher who left the Jewish community. He was cast out. He was excommunicated. But the Hasidim, it's a little different. I would say it's not exactly pantheism. That's kind of a misnomer. But it's more the idea that God is present everywhere and in everything. So you can embrace everything. The analogy that's coming to mind that I think maybe a modern listener on the left side of the political spectrum in the United States might be able to compare this to is the idea of instead of seeing the crime and the badness, they'll see 
the social reasons that caused that crime to come about, and they'll see the kind of, you could almost say, good reasons why something like this could come about. It's a different model of looking at an event that happened. Yeah, yeah, I think there's definitely similarity there. There's definitely similarity there. And I think a lot of the similarity is sort of, if you imagine there's sort of an infinite regress, right? right? If you see someone do something that appears evil, rather than saying that's evil, instead you question, well, what led to that? What was the cause before that? And you trace back. And that's sort of what I think a lot of this meditation is about, is that you trace everything back to God. You say, well, everything here is somehow sacred. Everything here is fulfilling some divine will. And so it should always lead back to God and ideally, eventually to this sort of state of Devikut. And Devikut has two dimensions or two forms to it. For one, there's, uh, I believe it's called Godlut, which is where you forget and leave behind your individual identity. It's sort of transcendental. And you just sort of join with God and are part of the divine realm. And then the other one, I think, is called Katnut, is where you then sort of look back down at the world and see how everything in the world is divine, right? And appreciate the divinity in all things. Different philosophers might emphasize one or the other, but basically Hasidism always involves both. It's kind of a dialectic, right, of looking up and looking down. This sounds like a recreation of Buddhism. Yeah, well, I don't know a whole lot about Buddhism, but it makes sense that there are many scholars who do comparative mysticism, right? Because you can see so many connections and parallels, you know, across societies. Okay, so how does this early movement that's growing in the late 1700s, how does it begin to settle in the 1800s? How do the tensions between these two groups resolve? Do they just agree to not talk to each other? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. A lot of scholars have said that the Ashkenazi Jewish population was really riven by a divide between Hasidim and so-called mitnagdim, traditionally observant people who didn't accept Hasidism. But this recent book that I read by a whole team of scholars, this massive new history of Hasidism, revises that and says, well, no, you know, there were people who were kind of in between and didn't necessarily have to take a side one way or another. If you were in a small village in Belarus, say, you might be aware of Hasidism, you might take some ideas, some inspiration from them, but you didn't always have to take sides. And the two different camps could sometimes get along, even if their leading thinkers were at odds, right? Disagreed. It wasn't like an ideological civil war. You know, that's an exaggeration. But Hasidism gradually grew and gained more followers, firstly among young men. That was sort of the first core. And then after 1800, also more mature established men, some rabbis became Hasidic. There were tzaddikim who were also ordained rabbis, and then also women. Basically, the vehicle was the so-called court. So the court is the gathering place where people can come and visit and associate with the tzaddik or the rebbe. Some of them grew enormous, right? So you might go around the countryside in Eastern Europe and find a small court with a tzaddik and some followers who meet in a shtibl. Or you might go to sort of larger towns, not cities, because it wasn't urban yet, but you might go to a large town like Sadagora in Hungary, or Liadi in Lithuania, or Chernobyl in Ukraine. And there might be a big court with a Rebbe who is really famous and who attracts pilgrims and visitors from all around, maybe the whole country. And on holidays, he might have hundreds of people gather around. And then just on ordinary Shabbat, the tradition was to host people, to preach, to lead prayer and song. So Hasidic worship was very musical. You might sing and dance. And then you would close out with a tish, a sort of supper at the end of Shabbat, where you would share food and maybe do some readings and teachings. And they would stay and not light lights until it was very dark. You would go into kind of a like a quiet mystical state as the as it got dark. Many, many people participated in this. And it's really impossible to count exactly how many Hasidim there were, because, you know, what if someone goes to one of these courts once or twice? Do they count as a Hasid? But some people really did adhere to a certain leader, a certain tzaddik, and they would make contributions, they would bring donations when they visited. And so if you guess roughly, it seems like in the southern areas, like especially in Galicia, 
probably close to half of the Jews were Hasidic by the mid-1800s. So the peak was like the 1840s, 50s, 60s. And so by that point, about half of the Jews in Galicia, Podolia were Hasidic. In the northern areas like Lithuania, it might have been 10%. It was a smaller fraction. But a lot of these Rebbe's could be very respected. You know, they had enormous influence. Some of them were more learned, more educated than others. They were overwhelmingly men, but in some places like in Chernobyl, there were some women who took up the role as well. They might not be formally called a rabbi, but often when a Rebbe died, his wife or daughter might take over for a while and lead the court. And they became pillars of society for a time. And some of these courts, especially, it seems the biggest one was at Sadagora in Hungary. The local nobility, you know, the nobles were very powerful in Eastern Europe. They owned a lot of land. They had a lot of wealth. And some of them said, you know, these Hasidic Rebbe's are great. They're respected. They have influence. They attract all these visitors who come and spend money. And they wanted (laughs) these courts in their towns. The non-Hasidic rabbis often were, you know, a little envious, but they had to tread lightly because they knew a lot of their own congregants liked and visited these rebbies. So like in Sadagora, the local nobility gave him a castle. They were like, oh, we have this disused like palace, just take it. And they refurbished it to serve this court and host hundreds of people. And they had, you know, prayer rooms and dining rooms. And they had a giant ballroom that could host weddings and holiday celebrations. And the roof of this ballroom was removable so that for Sukkot, they could just take it off and have their sukkah in in the huge ballroom. It was so opulent. And, you know, and this bothered some people, some people who had a more kind of modest ideal of what Judaism should look like. It, you know, it raised a lot of eyebrows. Oh, bring back the Jew castles. That's what I say. (laughs) Well, some of them are still there. I think you can still see some of these like palaces. But yeah, they reached a height in the mid 1800s. This was like the golden period. But then later, after 1870 or so, they went into decline, mainly because the countryside in Eastern Europe went into depression. You know, the grain trade was not as lucrative anymore. And then there were persecutions and pogroms after 1880. So a lot of people left, people went to the cities, some went to Palestine, then after 1900, some went to America. So the base was eroded. And eventually these Rebbe's had to abandon these huge palaces and somehow set up shop in a city somewhere. You know, they had to go to like Odessa or Minsk or somewhere where they could still have enough revenue to survive. And, you know, some of these courts with their dynasties of Rebbe's just died out, you know, they closed up, but some went to Palestine and some went to America, especially New York, Chicago, Montreal, the big cities in North America. So this is what, when we think about quote-unquote, Orthodox Jews in these urban areas. These are the descendants of folks that were oftentimes associated with these Hasidic dynasties, all coming over around the same time and living in a new part of America. Well, if you look at the Orthodox population in a place like New York or Montreal, it's heterogeneous. You know, there are different groups, and some are Hasidic and some are not. But there are sort of core Hasidic groups that are very important, that sort of survived and were able to flourish in new places. For example, in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, the main group is Chabad. And then there are towns and neighborhoods around the New York area where there are Satmar Hasidic communities. And also in Israel, there are groups like the Chernobyl dynasty, which I mentioned before. They basically decamped to Israel after the Holocaust. The sort of character of Hasidism changed. You know, they had to move to somewhere where they could continue to operate. But there was like a shift because if you looked at the Hasidic movement in, say, the early 1800s, when it's still really growing, it was seen as radical, right? It was a lay movement. It was bringing Kabbalah and these sort of rarefied spheres of knowledge to the ordinary folk. They were challenging the power of the rabbinate, and they embraced all sorts of people, including even Gentiles. You know, I should mention that some of the 
visitors who went and consulted with these tzaddikim were Gentile. It wasn't all just Jews because, you know, they were seen as healers and seers and wise men. So it was something very different and exciting and it was breaking boundaries, right? But then as the persecution increases and as these governments exert more pressure on Jews to assimilate and to become Russified or or Hungarianized or whatever, the Hasidim form a sort of pillar of opposition. Because they have such a huge following, these Hasidic Rebbe's are able to put their foot down and say, do not obey these orders to change your dress or change your diet or change your everyday language. They become kind of pillars of conserving Jewish tradition and traditional folk life, right? The Hasidism lived off of, right? It depended on Ashkenazi Jewish folk life. That was the world it operated in. So they became conservators of tradition. A lot of the Rebbe's discouraged their followers from emigrating. They were afraid that if people went to Palestine or even worse to America, they would become assimilated, become secular. They would lose their connection to that traditional Jewish life. And so when these people did emigrate and they went to Jerusalem or B'nai Brak or New York or Montreal, they were sort of driven by this determination to prove that they could transfer the traditional Ashkenazi life to these new places and not be assimilated. So some of them obviously are quite insular and very rigidly traditionalist, right? <laughs> it's kind of ironic. In some ways, you could say they became what they were opposing back in the 1700s, but, you know, in a different way, in a way that embraces all aspects of everyday life, you know, keeping up traditional Russian dress, keeping up traditional Eastern European diet, you know, maintaining this, this almost frozen in time lifestyle, right? And furthermore, that was reinforced then by the Holocaust, because after the Holocaust, that Ashkenazi world was devastated. Poland was hit the hardest of any Jewish community. So that world is largely wiped out. Who's still preserving it? The Hasidim. Right. So then people turn to them and often join them and they have grown. They've grown since World War II. And a lot of that growth is people being attracted to them and joining them because they see them as the link, the living link to that old world that was devastated by the Holocaust. So today. So basically, to answer your question today, you have these Hasidic communities that are now clustered in certain towns and cities, mostly in Israel and the U.S. and Canada some in Britain, who, you know, adhere very closely to the norms, the traditions of their particular community. And so in, in Israel, you have the Chernobyl group, you have the Bells group, they have their own sort of customs, traditions. In the US, you have various groups. Uh, Chabad is probably the biggest. And uh, Chabad is very significant in a lot of ways. So Chabad started in Lithuania. And remember, Lithuania is where there was like the most opposition because it was very intellectual, very literate, very learned. A leader emerged in Lithuania who was named Schneur Zalman of Liadi. And he was, you know, a charismatic preacher. He taught Kabbalah, but he also was an intense student of Torah. He was a scholar. And so he formed a sort of hybrid, you could say, compromise form of Hasidism that still emphasized the importance of study. It was more intellectual. It was sort of, you know, the Litvak variation of Hasidism, you could say. And they largely moved to America, especially to Brooklyn. And they continue to be led by successor Rebbe's, right, who follow in the line of Schneur Zalman. They're a very large group. The seventh Rebbe became very famous, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who was very revered among Chabad. Who died in the 90s, I believe. That's right. He was the Rebbe of that group, I think, from the 50s till he died in 1994. Under his leadership, Chabad kind of reoriented and said, well, we need to revitalize Judaism as the early creators of the movement did or aimed to do, right? We need to revitalize Judaism. And that means being more open and doing outreach to reform and secular Jews, which other groups like, say, Satmar are very insular. You're not going to have much interaction with the Satmar community. But Chabad, they want to draw people in. They want to encourage Jews to perform more mitzvot, to adopt more traditional customs and habits and observe halacha. And they uh, have grown and really thrived, you know, in the 20th and 
21st centuries. A lot of Jews who went to college in the United States will recognize the Chabad house or being accosted on the street by a Chabadnik who wants you to do a blessing. Yeah, the outreach is a big part of their mission and goal. And it's probably the most familiar Hasidic group to secular Jewish Americans. Right, right. And that custom, it seems, started in like the 1950s and 60s when more and more Jews were going to college, especially in the U.S., that, you know, Hasidic Rebbe's would do outreach and try to bring some of these young Jews into their court and consult with them and give them Hasidic teachings. And there was sort of a mutual romance, right? An emergence of some degree of neo-Hasidism, where more reform or non-religious, even non-religious Jews who read certain Jewish philosophers like Martin Buber would look to Hasidism for inspiration and for a more sort of emotional or mystical or metaphysical form of Judaism. And Chabad has capitalized on that the most. And they now, it's a practice for them to set up Chabad houses, like mission houses near colleges. Uh, And that's been pretty effective for them. There's still, of course, a tiny minority of the Jewish population, but you know, comparatively speaking, they've grown and thrived. Hasidism has sort of extended more influence, you know, into, you could say kind of, I mean, maybe it's a little premature, but you could say there's a bit of a spiritual revival movement among secular Jews, especially in the US, in Europe, in Canada. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, well, what are you <laughs> never heard of it. No. But, right, but a lot of them, you know, through scholars like Martin Buber, have taken some inspiration from Hasidic teachings, Hasidic practice, who see a more kind of vital Judaism there. And one other significant group in that movement, too, is the Breslover group, which is also really unique among Hasidic communities, because they started in Ukraine in the 1790s and early 1800s with a court around Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, who was, uh, you know, a, a scholar, but also a great poet, a writer of great urgency and emotional depth. You know, people can see in his writings a sort of psychological complexity, wrestling with depression, melancholy, the sort of tragic sense of life. And Nachman of Breslov sort of you could say, in his view, other Hasidic uh, philosophies were kind of more naive. It was more about, it was about celebration. It was, you know, simcha, obviously, is very important, the sense of celebration, joy of life. But Nachman of Breslov wanted to balance that also with an appreciation of of melancholy, of tragedy, of the sort of fallen parts of, of life. He built up a following fairly quickly, but then died at only 39 years old in 1810. And he left behind this massive canon of writings, which in some ways people compare to Franz Kafka and all these later thinkers, Schopenhauer. Like Kafka, he had manuscripts that he wanted burned at the end of his life. Yeah, well, and it makes sense with his philosophy. I think a lot of his philosophy was about accepting that you're going to lose the things you love. You know, it's this sort of Job philosophy. And what was unique about him was he he left behind this this mass of brilliant writings and these followers, but he didn't have a successor. So the group continued, but without a new Rebbe to replace him. And they continued to revere Rabbi Nachman as their tzaddik. And they even taught that he was the only true tzaddik. He was the only true holy person that there would be before the Messiah. So they were able to continue to operate more kind of underground, right, without a Rebbe and a court. One of the things they did was they made pilgrimages to holy places in Ukraine that were associated with Rabbi Nachman, like his burial place. And that's a common practice among many Hasidim, to visit the burial place of a tzaddik. But they're different. They're more kind of diffuse. They're leaderless. So they were able to survive the persecutions better. When the Nazis or the Soviets went after Hasidism and tried to shut down these courts, imprison the leaders, they couldn't suppress the Breslov group because they were so diffuse. They didn't have a focus that could be persecuted that way. So they were able to spread, especially to Israel-Palestine, and continue to, to flourish and they sort of reemerged then after the fall of the Soviet Union. And they too have embraced outreach, right? And they go on these big pilgrimages to their holy sites and they invite different Jews to come with them to participate in their music, their celebrations. And they also have formed a sort of new avenue for outsiders to 
have contact with the Hasidic world and Hasidic philosophy. In some ways, they're the most nonconformist. There's a distinction, right? There are many different varieties of Hasidism. And with the Breslavers, there is supposed to be more of an acknowledgement that some things in the world really are evil and bad, you know, more so than you might get from a Rebbe of the Chernobyl or Bell's dynasty, etc. So, you know, you can kind of shop around you know, and, and and find what sort of school of thought suits you, much as people have done in other places like India, you know, you can try out different gurus and see who speaks to you. And it's a mutual romance, right? There are these groups like Breslavers and Chabad who want to bring people in, who want to make contact, right? It's, it's a mutual thing. I'm seeing connections between the fact that so many men joined the Hasidic movement early on and how there's been many news cycles in the last 10 years about like the problems of the modern man and what to do with the modern man. And many of them are becoming radicalized in different ways. I just see a lot of analogous situations to mid-1700s social developments. Do you pick up on any of those analogies? Do you find that any of them resonate? That's a big question. And I think it's sort of something we always have to think about is like, how do people find a rewarding place for themselves in society? Men, women, young, old, how do people find a sort of place of belonging and honor in society? I think the Hasidic movement has always had a certain kind of open-endedness. Like, you know, you don't have to be a scholar and like read all night in order to be valued <laughs> as a pious person. There are different ways of showing your devotion, of having a relationship with God. You know, it opened up different spaces for different people in the Jewish world. I do think that, you know, young men were a natural audience for a movement like this to catch on. But one of the interesting phenomena is how it kind of created a different gender role, right? Other than being a husband and father, rather than being a yeshiva student, there was another way for Jewish men to find a place and find a way of life that hadn't been available before. And one that was more emotional, more expressive, right? Creative in instances, you know, so in a way, it sort of created a different gender model in that way for some men. And it was one that involved sexuality. You know, I mean, a big theme <laughs> of both the Hasidim themselves and the Mitnagdim was what do you do with your sexual feelings? You know, what do you do if you have sexual urges while you're in prayer? Right. You could repress <laughs> them or you can infinitely regress them back to uh, some yeah. sense of God. Yeah. And I think that Hasidism, it allowed people a way to think about their sexual feelings and their urges and their cravings without shame, right? To be less ashamed of them. Because uh, <laughs> that seems, you know, you're going to feel ashamed if you're having thoughts and the rabbi's telling you, you have to suppress those thoughts. And to be clear, you should feel ashamed. <laughs> right. We, we support shame. We support shame. But it's also really interesting how, how then women became part of the movement too, you know, and how women would also go to these these courts. Often women would run them. They'd be like the managers. Sometimes the Rebetzin would be effectively running the court. Sometimes if the, the Rebbe was ill or died, the Rebetzin would basically take over. And there were some women who were referred to as Tzadika, you know, the female form of Tzadik. In some places like in Chernobyl, that was fairly common, but it was always a woman who was part of the family, right? It was a wife or a daughter of a Rebbe. There's only one instance, which is very interesting. There's one instance of a woman who took on that role and had her own court who just came from a lay family, who wasn't from the dynasty. And her name was uh, Hannah Rochel of Ludmir. So she was, and she was also called the Maid of Ludmir. And she apparently was very devastated by the death of her mother. She had a kind of spiritual awakening. She took on male dress. She took on some male practices, you know, prayers that were only obligatory on men. So she was kind of, you know, you could say intergender. And because her family had wealth, she paid 
to build a shtibel in her town, and she gathered a small court and preached and held tish, just like a Hasidic Rebbe. And, you know, this attracted some attention of other nearby Rebbe's who stepped in and said, this is not appropriate. You know, as a Jewish woman, you have to get married. She did eventually get married and she stopped leading this court and reportedly she moved to Palestine. So this would have been in the 1870s, I think. So she was part of a very early migration to Palestine and she joined the small Hasidic group there in Palestine. And then we don't know what happened to her after that. We don't know if she continued to preach or practice in some way. But, you know, she was one instance of someone actually getting across this boundary, right? But it involved sort of gender bending. She didn't do it exactly as a woman. She did it, it seems, more as a man. Uh, but, you know, she didn't let her assigned gender stop her. <laughs> and she had some followers. There were some people who, who were devotees of her court. I wonder if there were women who were attracted to Hasidism who were in some ways attracted to the type of man that was being created by the Hasidic movement? Yeah, that's a really, it's a really good question. And we don't know a lot about what the women were saying and thinking because they were not educated in Hebrew. Women in in this world in the 18th, 19th centuries, they spoke Yiddish and they would learn to read and write in Yiddish. So most of them were literate in that vernacular language, but they weren't taking part in these, you know, theological discussions, which were largely in Hebrew. And there's not a lot of their surviving writings. So we don't really know for sure. But it certainly would make sense that, yeah, that it was a more appealing form of manhood, probably for some women. And today, you know, Chabad, Rabbi Schneerson encouraged more education and activity for women. And he encouraged women to form their own prayer groups, which are basically like minions, to get more secular education, more religious education. Today in the Chabad world, there are women who, you know, lead prayer groups, lead organizations, sometimes preach and teach. And, you know, according to this book, some of them basically are, in effect, like rabbis but they're just not given the formal title of rabbi, but that's more or less what they are in effect. Maybe, you know, maybe that trend will continue even more in the Hasidic world. So I'll just sort of briefly say, well, you know, it's remarkable that this movement emerged at basically the same time as Haskalah, as this Jewish, so-called Jewish Enlightenment movement that started in Germany. The relationships between Hasidism and Haskalah were pretty rough. You know, there were a lot of Haskalah writers who looked at Hasidism as like the worst, right? The most primitive, the most superstitious. They accused the Tzadikim of being sort of magicians, tricking the ignorant Jewish masses. And on the Hasidic side, many of the Rebbe's said, well, Haskalah is assimilation, it's abandoning traditional Judaism, it's just a step towards conversion. On the level of sort of intellectual debate, they were very hostile. And the Hasidic movement aligned itself more with the Mitnagdim, even though they disagreed with the Mitnagdim about how to do Jewish piety, they agreed that, well, we don't want Haskalah, that's going to undermine Jewish life. So there was a lot of friction there, but actually on the ground level among ordinary people, they could sometimes get along pretty well. And there was some common ground. You know, both sides believed that they needed to renew Judaism, to make it more vital for the modern world, to not be caught in just sort of dry rote repetition of tradition. So they could find some common grounds. And especially in Poland, Haskalah reformers and Hasidic leaders sometimes agreed that Jews should learn the vernacular languages. They should be able to deal with and interact with the Gentile world. They don't have to be uh, insular. So in some places, particularly in Warsaw, the sort of Haskalah party and the Hasidic party allied together. And, you know, in Warsaw, the Jewish community elected their own sort of city council that ran their schools, etc., and ran a social welfare system. And for a long time, the Hasidic party and the Haskalah party formed a coalition and governed the Warsaw community together. So they could find common ground sometimes. And so, you know, and if you don't know that, it can seem more strange. How is it that, you know, modern very secularized Jews are sort of attracted to Hasidism. But I think you can see a repetition that some people who come from a more secular, modernized point of view, 
can say, well, Hasidism offers a more sort of vital, evolutionary, engaging form of Judaism, rather than the sort of stereotype of the very rote, hyper-intellectual, halachic Judaism. Wow. Okay. Should we close it out? <laughs> like, holy shit. Okay, well, wow. Uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of heavy stuff, right? Fascinating. Lots of inspirational stuff there. Sam, thank you so much for giving us this survey of Hasidic Judaism. It was awesome. I love it. I had no idea how gay and how gender-bendy it could be. <laughs> Everything is gay subtext in all of history. It's all gay. But yeah, it was your idea to do the subject. It's a great topic. And I really, I love learning about it. It was really rich and interesting to, to read and learn about. I'm so glad we did it. Uh, listeners, if you want to find out more about Hasidism, just go to your local Chabad house. I'm sure they will dump a lot of information. On you. <laughs> you may never get out. <laughs> yeah, you may never escape. <laughs> Next week, Sam may be joining us, depending on whether or not he is busy. Pending further information, we're going to bring Hava back, and we're just going to fucking talk about it. It's going to be great. Break it down. We're going to break it down. We're going to break it down. It's going to be exciting and fun. So thank you, listeners, for joining. Shavua Tov. Shavua Tov, everyone.